0: Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You're in for a yummy show as our theme for this November 2011 episode is food and family history. To start us off, we will check in with the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad, who's going to tell us what's cooking. Then in our top tips segment, Family Tree Magazine author Sonny Morton will share tips for stimulating family history conversation around the dinner table from her upcoming article called Family Feast. Then in our 101 best websites for tracing your roots, we'll explore a terrific website it's called Feeding America. We'll do that with Peter Berg from Michigan State University. And in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Nancy Hendrickson will be here again to help us get started on creating a family history book all about our culinary heritage. And finally, we'll check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, editor and publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who's got a sneak peek for us of a food-themed book coming in 2012. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy News with Diane Haddad. Well, let's kick off this episode of the podcast uh, with news from the blogosphere, and we'll do that with the Genealogy Insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Well, Diane, there was um, some kind of sad news that came up recently, and I know this just is kind of breaking news. Um, Tell us about what's going on with the Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness website.
1: Well, that... um it's a great site that we've recommended a lot in Family Tree Magazine, and unfortunately it has gone offline for an undetermined period of time. So um, so we're sad about that. It was a great service that brought together people who needed genealogy lookups with people who were willing to do these lookups for free or just expenses.
0: Right. And, boy, it's been around for a long time since the early days of people
1: being yeah. online yeah um it sounds like there were some computer problems and health issues, so um so they didn't say it's gone for good, but they said um the owner said that it'll be offline for quite a while.
0: Ah well, we will stay tuned also because I imagine just knowing the genealogy community as I do that someone may um, step up to the plate and perhaps assist with it or or come up with another alternative um, because certainly, I think getting together and helping each other out is such a big part of how we are all successful in our research. I think you're
1: right about that.
0: Yeah. And then you were um, just telling me that there is a new project going on, um, kind of an upbeat way that genealogists are getting together and making a difference.
1: There is. You're right. Genealogists are very giving people um, from volunteer indexing to um, teaching classes, helping people in libraries. And this um, new project is a way for genealogists to help others, um, not necessarily genealogists, there's um, a group of genealogists working through a website called Kiva.com. It's a microfunding website. So what these um, genealogists are doing is they formed a team, and they can contribute as little as $25 to loan to families around the world, um, often in third world countries, um, to Invest in their businesses and become economically successful so that they can provide for themselves. And then, as these um, people pay back the loans, it's available to reloan to someone else who's in that same situation of need.
0: So, these are um, folks who just have genealogy in common who want to get out there and help um, support families around the world. Sounds like a really interesting yes. way to do that. And then Kiva, I think, is K I V A dot com. Is that right? That's right. Okay, great. And finally, I was just looking through some of the archives of your Genealogy Insider blog, because kind of our theme today in this podcast is food and memories and and how we all get together uh, around food and share family history. And you had a really neat blog post a little while back, but I know that this whole um, initiative is still going. The blog post was called What's Cooking, Uncle Sam?
2: Tell us about that.
1: It was about a really cool um, ongoing exhibit at the National Archives about food, and who doesn't love food, Um, about sort of the history of food in the United States and how government policies has shaped what people eat and um, for example if you think about World War II and the rationing and you would see all these wonderful posters about raising victory gardens so so that's one example um, there's some early food pyramids in which butter had its own food group <laughs> <laughs> well it still does in my house delicious. I think <laughs> I know <laughs> can we go back to that yeah so it, it's really fun and interesting and um, I think that blog post we had a little clip about the exhibit
0: you do there's a video here it's called what's cooking uncle sam this is actually really kind of fun stuff and it was a, it's a neat exhibit that they've got going over at the national archives so this is from june 2nd but i will have a link for everybody in the show notes so they can go check it out and see back in 1943 the the special place of honor that butter had <laughs> along <laughs> with other
1: food groups <laughs>
0: pretty interesting to see how things have evolved over time all right we well, hate great way to kick off this episode thank you so much diane
1: you're welcome
0: with Thanksgiving just around the corner, it seemed appropriate to focus in on food and family history in this month's episode of the podcast. So I've invited back Sunny Morton to the show to share some ideas on how to stimulate family history conversation around the holiday dinner table from her new article. It's called Family Feast. Welcome
3: back to the show, Sunny. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. This was a really fun article to write.
0: I really enjoyed reading it. And You know, as much as we might be tempted to sit down at the holiday table and start firing questions like an assault rifle, that's of course probably not a good plan. So I hope that you can give us some tips from the article for kind of couching our questions in creative and
3: non-threatening
0: ways. What have you got for us?
3: Well, I'll give you two tips here. I think just like presenting an elegant meal, it's all about presentation with your conversation. So first, I would serve a conversation starter before the main course, so to speak. Ah. Yeah, you'd ask a general question, question like, what's your favorite dish on the table? That's a layup. Anyone can answer it. Um, You don't need to make them think about anything. They just point. Or (laughs) they just tell you, I love this, whatever is is taking up most of the room on their plate. It's going to be pretty obvious. Then you can get into more specific questions like, well, is this an old family recipe? Or why do you eat pork roast instead of turkey for Thanksgiving? Or, you know, more specific things like that that they may need to think about. So that would be the first tip. Start with a conversation starter. The second tip is, you know, at a restaurant, they make your food look really attractive on the plate. Do the same thing with your questions. Present them in a fun way. Um, I've found that it's fun sometimes to pass around like a pilgrim hat or a Santa cap or a New Year's party hat full of questions. Or you could even go all out if you want to make homemade fortune cookies with life story questions written inside. It's all about how you want to spin it, but make it fun. Those are two
0: great ideas. And I love the fact that you're kind of playing off the idea of kind of how we present our dinner because it it does apply so beautifully. Um, Now, Of course, while the holiday family dinner table can be, of course, a great place to collect oral history, we all know it can be plagued with personalities that sometimes don't get together very often. Maybe they don't see the past the same way as they're kind of sharing their memories. And, um, you know, painful or sensitive topics are probably more suited for the one-on-one interviews, because, um, of course, after all, the primary purpose for the holiday meal is is making happy memories together. Do you have some tips on how to handle it when we find that the conversation is sort of venturing into some difficult territory?
3: Yes, you know, that, that can happen. You don't always know which of your questions are going to spark some heat. Um, definitely you can avoid ones that you think might be a little controversial or that people might have really strong feelings about. But sometimes people's answers, their opinions, or their emotions can get you totally unprepared. Um, I try to be prepared with a funny or a compassionate way to redirect the conversation, and it just sort of depends on your style and the group. I have found that being bossy of saying, well, now it's time to talk about something else, or to be judgmental about, well, no, that's wrong, you're remembering it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that just makes things worse. So I think that the best way I have found is just to say in a gentle tone something like, you know, Grandma, I can see you have some pretty strong feelings about this. I hope you'll tell me more about it a little later. But for now, I was hoping you'd tell all the grandkids about the time you ran over the pastor with your sled.
0: (laughs) That's a great way to go, you know, saying, acknowledging it and yet saying, but here's something that that I'm sure we'd all love to hear.
3: Yeah. Exactly. And then you know, if it every once in a while there's just that big fat awkward silence and there's just there's no way around it. It's become an elephant in the room that nobody really knows what to say next. And my husband who is usually the silent one at the at the dinner time conversation, he always comes in with a great line. He has a classic line for this. I've seen him use it successfully several times. He's a football fan in Cleveland, which is usually a really unfortunate thing to be. But he uses this (laughs) line so well. He just says, how about those Browns? (laughs) And that just starts a new conversation. People can just laugh about it. Yes, it was awkward. And now we're going to move on.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the signal. Everybody gets it. Oh, okay, I think we're done there. So let's keep moving. Now, let's talk about finally, some of the uh, the questions. You've got some great stuff in this article. um, But give us some of your favorites. What are some of the questions that you feel like you just shouldn't walk away from the table without asking?
3: Well, certainly most of the ones that I list there. Now, my own dinner conversations are a little bit unique. I think I have five brothers, all of them are married and almost all of us live locally so when we get together there's a lot of personalities around the table that are all about the same age um you know more or less kind of at least the same generation and as adults we're all very different and even our childhood memories are different because we were raised over a period of 30 years
4: Mm -hmm. so
3: when i'm with my brothers I don't need to ask, you know, to gather different types of um, memories like, okay, what kinds of traditions did you have when you're young? Did you have ethnic traditions or whatever? Because I know about those. But so I go for the unique. I found it really productive to put the emphasis on what do you remember about something? What was your favorite or what was the hardest one for you? So what do you recall as the, your best dish on the table or the one that you loved to make Or the best time we ever had on Christmas Eve, what was your favorite Christmas Eve or the best gift you ever got? Because that provides a really lively conversation without us all feeling like we have to agree because we won't. (laughs)
0: That's a great point. It started off with kind of the the understanding, of course, we all have a different perspective. So let's hear John's, let's hear Bill's, you know, and and throw it out there so that you can each have your own take on things. And isn't it interesting how we can all grow up in the same family and yet see things very differently and and remember them differently?
3: Right. I absolutely agree. Now, I do have a little section where I talk about grown-up holiday memories. And this is something that, as each of us sort of go our different directions as adults, I think are also really good questions because you can say, what holiday traditions have you continued to celebrate as an adult? And that I see expressed in my family. I have one brother who loved the homemade Christmas ornaments so much that last year he made each of his nieces and nephews these amazing vintage-style Christmas ornaments based on ones we had when we were growing up. And I was so touched, and it, it just expressed something that meant something to him so I can see that each person might carry something forward that's sort of the unique aspects of a holiday tradition that maybe is worth talking about at the table. Well, this is one thing in particular. I love listening to that old Bing Crosby CD or something like that that just says that this is what it was so special to me that I've carried it on.
0: Yeah. Oh, wonderful ideas. And of course, if you would like some more ideas to um, get prepared for some family history conversation around your holiday table, um, check out Sunny's article. It's called Family Feast. I'll have a link in the show notes to get you to the the correct issue of the magazine. And Sunny has always wonderful ideas and a great way to kind of enrich our, our holiday times. Thank you, Sunny. Well,
3: thank you. Have a great holiday season.
0: In today's 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, we are profiling the website Feeding America, the Historic American Cookbook Project. And joining me today to tell us more about it is Peter Berg. He's the Head of Special Collections and Associate Director for Special Collections and Preservation at the Michigan State University Library. Welcome to the show, Peter.
5: Thank you, Lisa. It's nice to be here.
0: Well, thank you for being here. You know, this is a really interesting and very unique website. What prompted the creation of the Feeding America website?
5: Well, um, it uh, it really is one of those stories where they say it happened uh, a long time ago. Um, we uh, here at Michigan State uh, have a, a really wonderful cookbook collection. It's a collection of about 10,000 volumes and growing. It gets use uh, by our undergraduates, and we also have a few visitors come every year. But um, uh, in the late 1990s, I was beginning to think I have these wonderful resources in special collections beyond just cookbooks, but a lot of other wonderful rare books uh, collections and special research collections. And we make them available, but uh, they have to be used here um, at Michigan State in our rare book reading room. And this is similar to other special collections and rare book rooms across the United States. We have these wonderful resources, but people have to come visit us to use uh, the material. We do this because uh, the material is very special to us, and so we want to protect it, and therefore people have to come here and use it in, uh, in a protected reading area. And so I began to think, well, now how can I make these materials more available to people? And this, of course, coincided with the great beginnings of the electronic age, the digital age. And so we began talking with some people here who had expertise in digitization and we thought about uh, what if we took some of our collections and digitized them that would then make them available to people literally worldwide. Uh, A student here at MSU, of course, could use it online, but uh, more importantly, somebody 200 miles away or 2,000 miles away uh, would have access to some of these fine research collections. The first one we did was uh, a group of 19th century Sunday school books, and as a result of our success with that project, we began to look for other collections, and I immediately thought of our cookbook collection. And so what we did was we worked with some experts in the area, and uh, we selected 75 of what we considered the most important American cookbooks, beginning in the late 18th century all the way up to 1923. And people may ask, well, why did you stop at 1923? Well, that is because of copyright law. All books published before 1923 are considered in the public domain. And therefore, people can use them, they can reprint them, and they can uh, use them safely and freely and So we decided then to have a cut off date of nineteen twenty three and we selected uh, what we believe are is a wonderful group of um of cookbooks that are representative of the United States, a regional cooking, ethnic cooking, representative of some of the great names in um in American cookbook history and so we digitized them, we made them fully searchable, but we also worked to provide people who came to the site uh, with background information on the history of cookbooks in the United States. Uh, We provided a glossary of words, because oftentimes a a word that was used in uh, 1820 in a cookbook uh, may not be familiar to um, eyes in the 21st century, so we have a glossary, and we also provided uh, a number of pictures of um, cookbook objects, food objects, uh, objects that were used in the kitchens historically. And so people could see uh, what maybe a meat grinder looked like uh, in the late 19th century if it was referred to in a cookbook. So we tried to really throw everything in to the pot, so to speak, and provide people with a very good introduction to food and food history uh, of the United States from 1798 all the way up to 1923.
0: Oh, it's such a, a fascinating collection and website. It's it's amazing and wonderful that you guys are making it available to people, like you say, across the country, across the globe. Um, so, because not everybody can make the trip there, and what I really think is fascinating about it is that um, so often, as a family historian. One of our greatest challenges is to learn much about the women in our family, the ones who tended to be the ones cooking, because they're not as recorded as as the men are. What are some of the things that stand out to you in your collection that you think that family historians, you've mentioned a couple of wonderful items, but what other things should we be looking for as a family historian that might be of interest to us in your collection on the website?
5: The one that I would zero in on, and we have um, a few of them, but uh, what family historians are going to find uh, at many cookbook collections, uh, and they may even have some in their own home that uh, may be overlooked, that I think provides a fascinating glimpse into uh, local American history and therefore family um, history in the United States, and that is your, uh, what we call your church and charity cookbooks. Uh, These are the cookbooks that were produced by schools, by communities, by neighborhoods, by churches, uh, many times uh, to raise money for a particular cause. In fact, the first one was developed by ladies after the Civil War in the United States to um, raise money for wounded soldiers. Um, And since that time, uh, they have flourished. They're being published today, as we know. Uh, It's very hard to go into any small-town bookstore uh, without seeing these spiral-bound, oftentimes, (laughs) spiral-bound cookbooks um, that are produced by, by a school, by a church by a local charity, and in those cookbooks, uh, in my mind, is what um, Americans are really eating. Uh, Oftentimes, we have these wonderful, and they get all the publicity, these wonderful celebrity chefs have these cookbooks, but you look at those and you realize, I don't have the time to do all of this. I don't have the resources to do all of this. Um, So therefore, that doesn't give you a very good glimpse of what people were actually eating um, in a particular region or a community. And so I would suggest that family historians should take a very good look at local history, a family history, by delving into these Church and charity cookbooks. They have been going, as I said, for now almost 150 years. Uh, almost every community has one. We here at Michigan State are doing a very large, or building a very large collection of church and charity cookbooks. And to me, they they provide a fascinating glimpse. Um, into what people are eating, and also into the history of particular communities. If you open a lot of these up, you're going to find advertising, uh, you're going to find signed recipes by uh, women and men and children sometimes in a particular community, and that can sometimes give um, uh, family historians or any historian a really unique window um, into Uh, Not only what people were eating, but what people were buying, um, uh, what a church looked like at a particular period of time, a school. They might provide maps of a community. And sometimes, as you know, over time, uh, these buildings, these streets, these homes uh, are lost. And so this is a wonderful historical glimpse um, into local history.
0: Oh, I can't agree more. I remember recently giving a talk on genealogy, and I was talking about a location, a little town in Minnesota. And somebody piped up and said, I have an old church cookbook from that town. Let me get it for you. And she mailed it to me a week later, and it definitely had not only recipes by some of our ancestors, but you could see their neighbors. And in fact, I found one recipe i had been looking for for years that I always thought must have originated in our family, but actually it was very apparent. It came from a neighbor.
5: <laughs> That's right.
0: And, and, and it's just such a wonderful little glimpse into their lives, You can check out all of the items that Peter's been talking about here on the podcast. Go to digital.lib.msu.edu, and you'll find it under Projects and then Cookbooks. And I'll have a link directly there in the show notes. Peter Berg, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast.
5: Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure.
0: With all this talk on the podcast about food and family history, it's important to cover how to share our culinary heritage. Creating a family history book is an ideal way. And I've invited Family Tree University instructor Nancy Hendrickson back to the show to give us some tips from her class. It's called Creating a Family History Book. Welcome back to the show, Nancy.
4: Hey, thanks, Lisa. It's always great to be here.
0: Um, In your class, you teach your students all the steps to creating a family history book. And I can't think of anything better than a book, you know, chock full of family history recipes and stories. So where's the best place to start when we're planning on creating a book like this?
4: You know, that's a great question. And actually, one of my own cousins did a family history recipe book that we all love because we say, oh yeah, do you remember when we were kids and, and Aunt Dolly fixed this at the family reunion? And none of us had the recipes, but my cousin was, was great in digging them all out from everybody. You know, the best place to start in doing this kind of book or any book really is with an outline. And I know that sounds very high schoolish, and most people think, oh, I don't wanna do an outline. But if you don't have an outline, it's too easy to go in so many directions that you lose focus, even with a family history recipe book. So if you start with an outline, you then know actually how to proceed. It's like I always say it's like a street map or a map when you're traveling. It, it, once you have the outline, all you have to do at that point is just follow the steps and your book is done. Now, for a recipe book, you might think it really isn't necessary. But, you know, you do need to think about how you want to put the book together. So are all of Grandma's recipes in one place and all of Aunt Dolly's in another? Or do you have the typical entree, appetizer, dessert sections? Or do you do it by decades? Do you do it by surnames? It's really going to make a difference in how that book comes together together. And that's why I always start with an outline.
0: Well, you make a great point. I mean, it, it seems elementary, and yet it's such a time saver. I, I know in in working on some books that I've put together that, um, boy, if you don't have that outline in place, you could end up going down one path and then halfway through realizing, oh, I'm trying to switch gears. That's not really what I was trying to do. So. I think that is terrific advice and I know in the class that you explain how you can include of course photographs and images which of course spices up the book um, but do you have any suggestions for people who are listening and they're thinking uh, oh, I'm not very lucky I don't have very many family photos that I can use what other types of images could they use in a uh, family history recipe book like this and where might they find them?
4: you know again another great question one thing that you can do is as you're making these dishes because you know if they're family dishes you're probably going to make them at some point in time is take a picture of the of the dish itself and you know i know we don't want to get into the ins and outs of food photography but you know just having a picture of the dish or or your family sitting down and digging into the dish i think that's pretty neat but if you don't have the older pictures, of family members you know there are so many places online to look for things that are relevant so let's say that your family lived in some little town in Indiana although you may not find a picture of your ancestor online uh, you know I'd be willing to bet you can find pictures of the main street in the town or or the courthouse or the library someplace where the person lived and if you can't find that Then I also go looking for events that would have happened during that person's lifetime. So like, just I'll throw this off the top of my head, like building the Panama Canal or some event that would have been significant in that person's lifetime. Just, I like that because it it really places the person in in a historical context. Because when we say, you know, 1889, for most of us today, that that has no meaning. We don't, you know, we don't really know, have a an image to hook with that. So I like events. I like uh, using place pictures. And if somebody's been in the military, let's say World War One, a World War One era thing, you can go easily find pictures of places that that person. Um, let's say it's the wife of a soldier. You know, where she might have sent a letter or a picture of a letter. I know my mom still has a couple of World War II letters from my dad in the V-mail. You know, it doesn't have to be the person person.
0: That's a great tip. And and I like the idea, even if you don't have the photograph, you can still scan page from the letter and just kind of have the image of the letter and then combine it with, like you say, a a postcard of, of the main street of town or whatever. I mean, those are great ideas of putting all of this into historical context. Do you have any other tips for us that we should keep in mind as we move forward with our book? You know, uh,
4: getting back to the letters just really quickly. I don't have a tremendous amount of pictures of my grandmother, but I do have a lot of the letters that she wrote to one of my aunts. And again, I think just scanning a page of a letter or even a portion of a page, for example, she wrote a Christmas letter during World War II. And at that point in time, my dad and all my uncles were in the war. And it was really poignant because she wrote you know maybe next christmas they'll all be home and what a wonderful thing to add to you know grandma's recipe for something so i'm i'm a big fan of letters so even if you don't have the pictures, scan the letters
0: that's terrific. I, I love it. And I, I just can envision a book like this coming together. And And if you're getting excited about this idea, just listening to Nancy talk about some of these elements that can all come together and tell such a rich story, you might want to seriously think about her class. It, it really walks you through it step by step, gives you all the tools so that you can really end up with a final project. Um, you know, a lot of us, we get some good intentions, but there's nothing more exciting than actually completing the project and being able to share it with our family. Um, Nancy, all great ideas. I will have a link to Nancy's class in the show notes. So you can go check it out and see if you'd like to attend an uh, upcoming session. Nancy, thank you so much again for being on the podcast.
4: Oh, it was great. Thanks, Lisa.
0: As we wrap up this November 2011 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Stacy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Well, welcome back, married lady. Thank you. It's nice to be back. <laughs> Congratulations on your wedding. And I know everything just went wonderfully, but we're thrilled to have you back here on the podcast. And um, I know that you are jumping right back into things because you've got a webinar coming up um, this month in November of 2011. Tell us about it.
2: Well, um, for those of you who regularly read our blog or Family Tree Magazine issues when they come out, you may have noticed that lately I have a dilemma. Um, I inherited a huge amount of family history stuff from my grandmother when they downsized to a smaller place, and it's just stacks and stacks of boxes full of all kinds of neat stuff, photos and records and all kinds of ephemera. The question is, what do I do with it all? And so, again, if you've been following um, on our blog and in the magazine, um, I've talked about this a little bit. Well, um, this month, Denise Levinick, who is the family curator blogger, is going to be doing an Uh, Webinar on organizing your family archive and she's going to use me as the guinea pig so um, if you've been following the story you'll be able to kind of see up close and personal um, some of the things that I've inherited and hear uh, Denise's advice for how to deal with it all and you know this is something that lots of people run into I know I'm not alone based on all of the comments and um, suggestions that people send in you know when people downsize or when people pass away we inherit things uh, that are in various states of organization or disorganization, if you will. And it, it's a real struggle to figure out what to do with it. And so I think this is advice that will uh, appeal to a lot of people.
0: Well, that's kind of a nice problem to have, inheriting yeah. all that wonderful family history. But you're right, it's it's a big job getting things organized and making sure that we're taking care of them properly for the future. So that sounds really great. Okay, so um, by the time we get this episode published, we'll probably have a link for you in the show notes um, that will get you to the webinar. And of course, you can always go over to Family Tree University or FamilyTreeMagazine.com. and um, we'll have links there and you can get registered for this webinar. Denise is terrific at this. So I am really looking forward to seeing how she straightens you out.
2: <laughs> so am I.
0: How fun. Now, of course, also before I let you go, you know, we've been talking about food and family history in this month's episode. And you've got something in the works that we get to look forward to along those lines. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, this is a real sneak peek uh, for those of you listening. Everyone has recipes that get handed down in their family. Um, And, you know, some people have stronger food traditions than others It passed down in their family. If you don't have strong food traditions, you might want to learn more about what your ancestors ate or what the food traditions would have been, and we're actually planning a book that will deal with that. It will help you discover and preserve those that family food history. Um, it's got kind of three parts. One part will explore the social history of foodways in America and um, of you know, the immigrants who came over and explain how you can research those food traditions that your ancestors would have followed. And then there's some actual historical material in part two that shows you. The kind of recipes that your ancestors would have prepared um, as well as some entertaining advice and cooking advice given to um, housewives back in uh, earlier times and then my favorite part is the last part because it's a journal where you can record your own family's recipes for future um, generations and it's all put together in a nice um, hardcover package with a ribbon that um, you can use as a placeholder bookmark and um, it's really designed very lovely I think it's a keepsake that a lot of people will enjoy
0: oh that sounds wonderful not only can we learn about the past but then it kind of gives us that mechanism for for bringing it into the future and, and sharing what we're learning of course at the family table from now on how wonderful and pass it down
2: yes it's actually called from the family kitchen and it will be released in May of next year Oh,
0: good. Hey, thanks for the sneak peek. Okay, so we'll look forward to that. And we will, of course, let you know when it becomes available um, here on the podcast. Well, Allison, thank you so much. We will uh,
2: talk to you next month.
1: All right, talk to you then.
0: so much for joining me for this November 2011 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet here again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis at blog.familytreemagazine.com insider. Next, head on over to FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast, and there you will find the show notes for this episode, which are going to include information and website links for everything that we covered in today's show, including the Feeding America website. And try your hand at searching for locations and ethnic foods that apply to your family history on the website. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Also, in the show notes, you'll find information on how you can pick up Sonny Morton's new book. It's called My Life and Times, a guided journal for collecting your stories. If you have questions or comments, I hope you'll email me at ftmpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and I invite you to visit me at my website, genealogygems.com, where you can listen to my free podcast, the Genealogy Gems podcast and Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. Both of those shows are also available through iTunes. So until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.